service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll enough for rock and roll. Hey there, I'm Chris Shiflett, and welcome to my brand new show, Shred with Shifty, where we learn all your favorite guitar solos from the guitar players that actually played them on the record. Okay, real quick, if you want to send me some guitar questions or make requests, hit me up on Instagram or Twitter or my TikTok or Facebook pages. And if you want to get updates on my solo releases or touring or merchandise or sign up for my Shifty's Tackle Shop newsletter, head on over to chrisshifflettmusic.com. And of course, follow Shred with Shifty at volume.com slash Shifty and uh, wherever else you download podcasts to always get a front row lesson from all your favorite guitar heroes. All right, let's jump in. So when I was about 10 years old, my older brother Scott brought home a record by a band that I had never heard of called Rush. And that record was called Moving Pictures, which seems kind of ridiculous now because it's such a classic. But at the time, it was like sonically and stylistically a little bit of a departure from, you know, most of the stuff that was dominating our turntable at that time, like Kiss, Black Sabbath, Aerosmith, those kind of bands. Now, this was, of course, the Guitar Hero era. And all of a sudden, we had ourselves a brand new hero named Alex Lifeson which is why he was one of the first people I reached out to when I started trying to line up guests for the show. And with so many great solos in his catalog, it was hard to pick just one, but we did. Uh, we're going to focus on the lead from Limelight, which does exactly what a great solo should do. It's a scene change. It's kind of emotional. It builds. And yes, it shreds. Now, on a side note, let Alex Lifeson be a guiding light for all potential Shred with Shifty future guests. Because although I'd met him a few times here and there over the years, I never had any direct communication with him. Like, we weren't text pals or anything like that. But when I reached out to him to see if he would come on the show, he immediately responded with, sure, exclamation point. I'd love to. There was no uh, talk to my publicist, talk to my manager. There was no hamming and hawing, just uh, easy breezy. Because not only is Alex Lifeson a rock legend and an incredible guitar player, but he is just a great dude, as you're going to see right here in this interview. So let's get to it. This is Alex Lifeson on Shred with Shifty. Alex, thank you so much for doing this. It is my great pleasure to be here. It's much more my pleasure, believe me. And, no, uh, I think it's more mine. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you right now? Because that looks like either an incredibly well-organized man cave or you're at like Rush World headquarters or something. So <laughs> I'm a Virgo. So this is my... This is my den. This is the studio that I built in my apartment. And uh, as you can see, the guitars and all my analog stuff on the side here, Neve preamps, a bunch of compressors and uh, a bunch of amps. So it's a really, really great room. We're on the 24th floor. We have a great view of the city. That's very inspiring working in here. Amazing. See, I thought that you had auctioned off all your 
uh, guitar collection, but it looks like, I and mean, I can't tell what's what exactly in the background there, but that looks like some good stuff. You know, I, I had 63 guitars in the auction. I think five came back. I thought I must have a few guitars lying around my my son has a studio. I know I had stuff there. And then I, I remembered that, oh, yeah, there's a couple under, under the bed. There's one in that closet. Oh, my God, I still have eight in storage at the warehouse. Under the box of kimonos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I, I know I, I have, I don't know, 20 or 30 guitars left here. Nice. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, buddy, um, I'm a little nervous doing this interview today and not because not so much because, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. You're a huge influence of mine and a legend. But I was more thinking about it last night as I was getting ready for this. I was thinking about your fans, Rush fans, because I posted some stuff on my social media that I was going to interview you to because I like right. to take some fan questions. And your fans are a different breed. They're hardcore, obsessive know all the details type of fans. And I was like, the pressure's on, man. If I screw this up, I'm going to get like, uh, you know, <laughs> raked over the coals on Twitter for sure. Yeah. You know, we were really fortunate. Um, somehow we connected with our fans in such a way that be they became quite dedicated to the band uh, and always interested in what we were doing, always opinionated on what we were doing, what they liked and what they didn't like. And um, it was a really strong relationship that we've always had right from the very beginning so and i and i mean your fans are are amazing as well and and not too dissimilar although you have many more but um <laughs> I, I don't know about that <laughs> I, don't, um, I, don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know i don't know sir yeah so it's I've been to uh, some you, of your shows <laughs> you said it was like that from the beginning do you do you feel like i mean obviously you picked up a lot of new fans along the way but do you feel like yeah. uh, over the course of your guys's career like are there still people, were there still people coming to Rush shows like, you know, in, in the 2000s that had been there in, in the 70s? Um, I think there was a certain attraction to the band in the 70s up until about moving pictures. Uh, I think a lot of our European fans, especially in the UK, uh, were probably more a part of that earlier uh, generation. And I'm, I'm not sure that all of them carried on. You know, there was a sword and sorcery kind of period that we were in. Um, and we've gone through different levels of fandom over the years. I think uh, later on in the early 2000s with I Love You, Man, and when we had the um, the documentary come out, it brought in a lot of fans, especially female fans. That's something that we never had. You know, we, we always, <laughs> like, that's like one of the great stereotypes of, of is. fans is that it's just a room full of dudes. It's, yeah, it's so true. <laughs> well, you know, I think our female fans amounted to maybe 3% of the audience in those early days. But after that movie, and after, especially after the documentary, and I think there was, um, you know, there was a lot more of our personal character that came out in that documentary. And I think a lot of women connected, especially married women connected to it. And we were family guys. We had kids. We, you know, we married early, all, you know, all of those sort of things. And, and, uh, and of course, your sense of humor, like you guys are funny. And that doesn't necessarily come across because you don't make silly, funny music. You know, it's no, no, it's pretty serious. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there are moments, but um, no, it's true. We, oh, my God, we laughed so much over those 40 years. It was so much fun being together and we had our rough times you know where we were tired and 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 stressed but generally we just laughed so much and just had such a great time well you talk about that period the difference between the 70s era and and moving pictures and i think of permanent uh, to me like maybe it's because moving pictures was the latest rush record when my brother brought that record into our house so i think of that era permanent waves moving pictures uh signals it's, it's, that's like a one chunk you know uh, in, in my, in my, in my sort of nostalgic memories of, of your music. But like, um, was that, and it was a shift musically and just music generally was changing. New wave was coming in. Um, and just the MTV was starting to happen. All that stuff was, there was a kind of a big shift, you know, moving from the seventies into the eighties. Um, was that a conscious decision or effort on your guys' part to change your sound or were you just sort of caught up in the zeitgeist? I, you know, I think after we did Hemispheres, that was such a difficult record for us to make. Uh, 
And we felt like we'd really worn out the whole idea of a concept in terms of a whole side. Now, I mean, I think all our records are conceptual. Neil wrote that way. You know, he would get into a groove and, and basically write everything about that particular subject from all angles. Um, but to do a true concept record like 2112 or, or Hemispheres, uh, we felt like we came to the end of it. Yeah, and like you were saying, everything was changing. Music was changing. We wanted to write in a more economical way, shorter songs, but try to get the same impact and get all that stuff that we wanted to do fitted into a four- or five-minute um, package rather than an 11- or 12-minute package. You know what's funny is is because I always think of that as the early period of rushes, like you know songs that are the whole side of a record and all that thing, and then I, and then the period that we're talking about is is like you said more economical, shorter songs. But then I went back and just looked. I wasn't listening to your entire catalog yesterday, but I just looked at the song lengths. And in fact, in the Permanent Waves Moving Picture, there's still long songs on those records. <laughs> And on the early records with the really long songs, there's most of the songs are still like three minutes long or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, but they were, yeah, they were in an intact kind right, of right, 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 right. Yeah, that's that's true. Like so many natural science, I think is nine minutes. Xanadu's nine or ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, we, we we continued writing long stuff, but it was a little more disconnected. Who were you, what were the like up and coming guitar players at that time that were influ influencing your playing and your approach and your tone? Um, I always think of like, you know, like we, the, the era that we're talking about, like Andy Summers and maybe The Edge or people like, who were you listening to that was having an impact on what you were doing? Well, I, I loved Andy Summers playing. Um, t tonally, it was quite unique. It was so chorusy, but his, uh, the, the chordal structure and the way he took up space in those songs, in those police songs. His Sting was a pretty pedestrian bass player. He wasn't flashy or anything, and he had a very that's, round... That's going to be the pole quote from this interview, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Great bass player in that band. He did, did, did his job, for sure. Uh, very melodic, and he's a great bass player. Bass player. But he wasn't... Uh, uh, too flashy it didn't take up too much space sure. and I think that left more room for Andy to create a broader uh, palette uh, in behind sure. you know a really great drummer and a really great bass player and a great vocalist so it was a whole different context from from what we were doing um, Alan Holsworth uh, maybe a little bit earlier but through that period as well he was such a fantastic uh lyrical player i mean he sounded he played like a sax player and i know he played sax as well but all his phrasing was like that and his use of the vibrato arm was what really got me into using a vibrato arm i thought i thought you know i'd never heard it it wasn't it wasn't a whammy bar it was a vibrato arm uh. and he would glisp between notes and phrases and in such a way, it was stunning to listen to. Well, there's a lot of that in the solo for Limelight that we're going to focus on today, which right. is why I brought this uh, this Charvel. I don't have a lot of uh, guitars with Floyd Roses on them. Right. And, and in trying to sort of woodshed through this solo, I realized I'm terrible with the, with the tremolo bar. You're going to have to tune me up on this thing today. <laughs> like I make a lot of noise with it, but, um, but you, but it's so beautiful the way that you're sort of sliding into the, into the notes. Yeah. It's kind of funny with the vibrato arm. It's a, it's a very delicate uh, appendage to the guitar. You know, I think the way I use it generally is, you know, I'll, I'll play. <laughs> something so it's not so much of the right right just to give it a little sizzle it's just a little subtler thing and it's a it's a downward vibrato so it's different from, you know, playing the typical. Right. Yeah, it, it, I just think it has it's more of emotion. 
who were the guys that you were listening to when you first started playing that made you want to be not just a guitar player, but a lead guitar player? Uh, a lead guitar player? Well, I love Pete Townsend, but I never considered him a great lead player. I, I think his strength was in rhythm guitar uh, and a great songwriter. Uh, but for me, I would say... Uh, Jimmy Page was probably number one for me growing up. I really uh, loved his playing, his attitude, his, the look, like everything about him was something that I wanted to emulate. Um, but, of course, Hendrix was incredible, but I never felt like I wanted to emulate his playing. I thought he was so unique and so different and so excellent and so difficult to copy that uh, I thought I'd just leave that one alone. Um, but Alvin Lee back then in that oh, time, Alvin in the Lee. early 70s. Yeah. Um, later on, Steve Hackett from Genesis always loved his playing. Again, in the context of a band, he, you know, he really serviced the music well as the guitarist. Was Jeff Beck an influence? In, oh, in my God, yeah. Yeah, from the very, very beginning, from when I first started playing guitar, when he was in the Yardbirds. We used to play uh, a few Yardbird songs when, when we were just starting out, when we were 13 years old. How old were you when you started playing? I was 12 years old when I got my first guitar. Which was what? Uh, 65, 66, maybe Christmas 66. What, what then, was your first guitar? So it was a Kent. It was a Kent acoustic guitar, like a steel string acoustic. It was awful. The you know the strings were about three inches above the neck. I, you I had, you had to really want to play that thing. Yeah, you had to. <laughs> uh, and my parents bought it for me for Christmas for ten dollars. Uh, so it was a pretty cheap guitar. Um, now, granted, it was <laughs> back in the sixties that things were cheaper, but even by those standards, it was a really cheap guitar. So, and then I got in um, for Christmas in nineteen sixty-seven. I don't know. Can you see that one back here? In the corner, can you see that red one? Yeah, it's a Kenora. I had Kenora. it refinished recently. So, were were you like a real, like serious guitar student? Were you disciplined when you were learning uh, how to play? I uh, I recall in those very early days playing a lot. When I came home from school, I always played. I I, I just I loved playing and I loved learning songs and. Uh, and that was always a challenge, learning songs, because I couldn't read music. I could read music. I was taking viola in, in high school, but um, not that way. And I just learned by ear. But I think when we started the band and started getting a little more serious about playing and practicing and rehearsing, then I couldn't stop playing. I would come home from school and I would just pick up my guitar, play till dinner, have dinner, and then play until I went to sleep at 11 o'clock every day. I couldn't get enough. So, Do you remember the moment you learned your first, like, lead guitar lick? Like, the moment you went from, I'm playing cowboy chords to, like, you know, Chuck Berry stuff or what, whatever it was. I don't know if I can remember the first time I actually learned a guitar solo, uh, but I do recall figuring out a solo and, and finally learning it well enough to play it all the way through. And that was the solo from Spoonful uh, for Cream from the first album. And it's a long solo, uh, but I had it on, you know, my sister's record player. She had one of those little record players. And I just put up, you know, put the record on and played it over and over and, and played along. Sometimes I put the speed down a little bit and, and try to listen to the, to the more closely to the structure. But I remember, I recall playing it for a friend of mine who came over and, uh, and I played it without making a mistake. Well, I think that's the way I remember it anyways, but it was, it was like it happened yesterday. I mean, I can, I can feel the room and it was sunny and it was a summer day and it was in the late afternoon, like uh, everything I remember about it, the green, couch that my parents had in that tv room sitting there by the, the world record. shifted on its axis a little bit well you know what it's like with guitar you sort of you get to a level and it seems like you stay at that level forever this is when you're beginning forever and ever and then suddenly you go up a notch it, and it just happens 
And then you're on that level forever and ever and ever. And then you go up another notch. It's a very gradual process, I think, for you to develop your skills and your confidence more than anything. I've never felt super confident in my playing. I always felt like I could be better than I was. Sure. And I think that's a good thing. It forces you to work harder at it. But I, I've always been a little insecure about my playing. And I feel... Even through the years of, like, once you were a successful musician that people worshipped and looked up to and copied your style? Yeah, even more so. I just felt like... I, I'd hear somebody and go, fuck, that guy can really play. You know, it's... And it just, it drove me to to try harder and harder and harder. And I think that's all, all a good thing. I think now in my uh, grand old age, uh, I'm, I, I try to play pretty much every day. And I play a lot of acoustic now. I don't play as much electric as I, I used to. I just love playing with alt tunings and, and goofing around with acoustics and capos and things like that. Um, and I feel like I'm more myself. I, I'm more of the guitar player I think I am. Even though... I'm, I'm slowed down. I, I, I don't play as fast. I don't play that kind of stuff very much anymore. Uh, yeah, I think that's a funny thing when you listen back to old recordings. I, I, I was listening to a, a demo my band in high school made not too long ago. And, you know, I think across the board, I'm yeah, a much better guitar player now. That was a long time ago. But I couldn't, e I couldn't even begin to play what I was playing back then. It was so fast. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was the thing then, too. You know, who's sure. just the fast? done in town yeah uh, and a lot of the players like alvin lee for example it, it was just pure speed uh so that set a standard and you tried to get up to that standard without uh faking it or fluffing through it you know the right hand gets going really fast and it sounds like the left hand is as fast right it generally isn't <laughs> you learn you learn some of those tricks like well you don't actually have to pick every note you just pick every other one or insist you know I think the great breakthrough for me was realizing at a certain point, because I know exactly what you mean about that feeling of insecurity about, you know, you see other yeah. guitar players and you're like, oh, that guy's the real deal. I'm not the real deal. That's the real deal, you know? Yeah. But you, you eventually realize that, like, most casual music fans don't know or care because it's not, like, they're not judging it on that. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's, a, it's an emotional yeah. reaction. Yeah. Like, a lot of times people ask me, uh, you know, you every show must be so great. And the reality is that in a, on a tour of maybe 80 dates, there are two or three shows that you would say, that was a really good show. We really nailed it that night. All those other nights, they're good. But there was something that, you know, didn't feel quite right, or it wasn't quite in the pocket, all three of us, or, or there was a train wreck at, at some point. And we had some massive train wrecks. With our music, if you got lost boy, it was hard to get back. And Neil, I mean, Neil's monitors were all drums. He had a little bit of vocal and a touch of bass, I think. I don't think he had any guitar in, in his monitor. That's the most drummer guitar. thing I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, isn't it? I know, they're all like that. The difference between your live rig in 1978 and, you know, 1998 must have been extreme. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And we were always sort of uh, on the cutting edge of technology. We were, we were totally into it. We wanted to get the new best stuff or at least work with it, try it out. Um, Did that lead to like some some of the like fail moments <laughs> that you're talking about, like something going wrong? Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There were there were lots of moments where stuff would would just cut out or wouldn't work, period. Um you know, I think uh, in the very beginning, I had a distortion box and a Wawa, and that was kind of all that was available for uh, effects. But once we started touring, um, in the early days, it was pretty much I had a phase shifter, a Maestro phase shifter. I don't know if you know that that one. Sure. It was a really cool little uh, phase pedal. Uh, it was almost like a box. You know, it was about this big on the on the floor. But as things progressed, and we got to the uh, mid seventies and that jazz chorus, that Roland jazz chorus came, uh, on market. And I was just blown away by how that sounded. I used to sit in the studio in Rockfield when we were making, um, a Pharaoh of the Kings, I would just sit in front of that amp and it was stereo. 
and it sounded, I'd never heard anything so creamy and, and beautiful. And I got addicted to it. And I used the chorus on a lot of records. And when I listen to some of those records now, for example, we know we just re-released uh, Signals. And I listened to it, and it's just chorus all the time. And I, I, wouldn't, I would never do that now. But back then, I just loved that, the way that sounded. And Andy Summers, another one who's, I mean, almost exclusively chorus pedal on, right. on, uh, on his sound. Would you bring that amp out with you in addition to whatever else you're playing, you know, High Watts or Marshalls or whatever? Or would, well, did, did it just become that? Well, the Boss Chorus pedal followed soon after that. So that was in the studio with that amp. It was a new thing. Uh, so I got the chorus pedal, and that was the original chorus pedal. It's you know quite large. Um, I still have it in in my drawer. The original pedal from really? 1976. Yeah. Uh, Does it still I mean, work? I can get it if you want it. Yeah, yeah. No, it works great. <laughs> but it's so much easier now, just hitting a plug in when you're sitting here working sure. away. But uh, and then after that. Yeah, all of those digital delays and every every multi effects unit uh, in the world came out, and now I had a rack that was very complicated and uh, but fun. And I loved it looking back at it when we were on stage and seeing all those little flashing lights in a dark stage was. Oh pretty yeah, cool. it's like Battlestar Galactica or something. It's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, you know, I feel like all guitar players have what I think of as your guitar store lick. Like when you go, when you pick up a guitar you've never played before, uh, just, and you know, you have no idea how the neck feels or the action or anything. Like you have like a couple of things that we all do to sort of test it out, see how it, how it feels in your hands. Do you, do you have one of those? That you could demo for us? Oh, actually, I don't. But but generally, if I'm just checking a guitar, I get up and I start playing some lead stuff. You know, just this oh there it is there it is <laughs> that's what i was looking for right there yeah and uh, th just to hear the sustain on that on an e chord generally speaking when you're in the studio and you're putting together a solo what's your approach do you come in with it kind of written out and prepared or do you just noodle till you find the magic yeah that's a great question because i i think i work quite differently from a lot of people um I will work on some solos, but I would say by far, I like to leave it until the day. And typically I don't do more than about five takes. I find that uh, those first five takes uh, are the most um, pure takes for me, where I'm just not thinking about what I'm playing and I'm just playing. I'm caught up with what I'm hearing and how I apply the solo to what the bass, when I say bass, I mean B-A-S-E, of the song is. The, the structure of the song, the tonality, the emotion, all of that stuff. I'll listen to it numerous times before I actually play a single note when we're doing solos. And then I'll do those five takes. And, uh, and I find after that, I start repeating myself. And, and I know part of it is trying to find a structure and develop a structure, but at the same time, I'm never, I, I get, I just get bored with it. I, you know, I'm impulsive when it comes to that sort of thing. Getty's the opposite. He really has to hear everything wrong before he knows it's right. So he'll spend hours and hours and hours uh, doing stuff. I like to spend minutes doing stuff. And this solo, for example, for Limelight, if my recollection is correct, it was about five or six takes that we did for that. Then Terry and Ged, they'd kick me out of the room and they would do a comp of those solos. And I wouldn't come back in the room until they were ready and they said, you know, to come back in. And generally I would say that I was happy with how they perceived the solo and how they fitted the parts. 
you know, Getty and I are super, super, super close. We're, I mean, we've worked together for so long and we've been best friends for forever, for, I don't know, 50 years, more, more than 50 years, so 55 years. Did that, uh, that ever create odd moments in solos where they comp something together that's like super unnatural as a guitar player and then you have to go out and do it live for the rest of your life? Always. (laughs) it was always but then it was a challenge because i I had to learn that solo and i always i think well i played it i played those parts so i'll be able to do it again it's just how you put them together like from here to here in the space of a millisecond is a tough reach you know but uh and and this solo was one of those this has you know it has a lot of really languid kind of movement and bends and and pulls and drops and notes that come in and creep up and uh and when i first heard the comp i i thought well they really got all the stuff that i liked i i mean i can't really remember what was left over from those solos but i was very happy with with the structure and um and how they heard it and put it together because it really reflects the emotional character of the song of being disconnected and uh, living a life that's on a stage and, and kind of fake and not real and uh, and the demands that, that kind of celebrity that, that takes from you. The solo, I really wanted to to echo that that feeling and that, that sense of loneliness. Well, it's and, really interesting you say that because it's, it's such a dramatic scene change within the song. You know, with the rhythm guitar completely drops out. It gets real lonely. Yeah, yeah, it's a real mood shifter, that one. Um, and it's, it, I think it, it fulfilled everything that I wanted out of it. And most, most of the solos that I've done, um, I feel pretty confident that I nailed what I, uh, uh, my expectations, not always. Some are just crazy playing and, uh, fills the void. And I, and those, those solos really stand out to me. I can't name any right now, but. What, like Analog Kid? Where it's just fast and crazy? Well, that analog kid was fast and crazy because I wanted it to be really energetic and and crazy. Yeah, and, and it is. You know that I had a uh, what do you call it? A, like a, a harmonizer pedal that kicks in. You know, towards the end of the solo, and it just creates so much tension and angst and the teenage kind of uh, sensibility. Uh, so that that was satisfying to me that that did do what i intended it to do how did those shifts you know i think of your music like the keyboards are maybe getting a little more prominent things you know the dynamic musically is is changing how did that affect your your guitar playing well i would say that um in the beginning around the time of 2112 just a little after that probably um and we introduced the mini Moog and bass pedals and Getty and I both had bass pedals and uh, Taurus pedals, uh, right? Uh, the Taurus pedals. Yeah. Um, we wanted to expand our song, our sound without expanding the size of the band. Uh, so we took it apart ourselves to learn how to play those things and, and add them into the whole mix. I think in around the time of, um, power windows where we sort of reached that peak of keyboard use and, uh, it got um, much more difficult for me to feel comfortable in what I would typically do in in our music, and quite often that those keyboards were recorded before the guitar was. So it left me to have to recreate or create parts that I ha- I didn't really intend to fit in, uh, and a tonality that was sit on top of these very you know big middle frequency keyboards. That was really, really challenging. I, I used, um, around that time, I, I used, a, this guitar was called a Signature, and it was single-coil active pickups. So very, very clean, very chimey. I hated that guitar. That guitar was a, like an awful guitar to play. I'm sorry, that, which, what, was that, the, what was the brand? It was called the Signature. And I had a, like a few of them, a white one and a red one. Yeah, it was a, a Canadian company that made them. and um, But I liked how the pickups cut through all the keyboards and 
kind of put the guitar up on a higher level on top of the mix of all of these sounds. But it was it was super uh, challenging to to get that. It was very difficult to make a to do like a heavy rock guitar in amongst all of this keyboard stuff. And I I mean I love that. I love those records. Uh, they're very different in in the ter- in terms of our whole discography. Those really stand out as very very different records. They have a very different feel, crisp, clean, with all of this intricate keyboard stuff. But it was hard, and I'm not sure that I felt like this was where Rush should be going. But we went there, and I was along for the ride, of course. And then after that period in the early '90s with uh, counterparts. We went back to more of a heavier sound, but still used keyboards in a in a uh, supportive way rather than a featured way. Wait, so was the signature guitar you're talking about? Is that the Sportscaster? Oh no, it's the Sportscaster. That's the Hentor. Okay. Yeah, that's the one that I, that I actually used for, for the Blind Light solo. So uh, in the late '70s, I, I had a a Strat that I would use as a backup guitar. I might use it for a couple songs, but generally it was a backup in case I broke a string. I'd just play that for a song or two and get my guitar back. Um, but I, but I wasn't crazy about the sound, the difference between the Gibson and the Fender. So I dropped a humbucker in it. I actually did it myself. I was, we were on tour in England and there are some great pictures of me sitting in the, in the dressing room, you know, with, with all the two, like a saw. <laughs> doing. Are you like routing out the body of the guitar? To Absolutely. Yeah. Really? Cutting wow. the, the, the guard and the whole deal. Um, and I dropped the, the humbucker in, and right away I, I really loved the way it sounded. Now it had the balls, but I still had the middle and and uh, bridge uh, and forward pickup that was were Fender's single coil, so I could get a nice clean tone without having to turn way down and change the amp sets settings. Um, and then um, I had the Hentor built by Venom and Music. They were a, a company in Maryland, I think. Uh, and it was based on that black one that I reconstructed. Uh, and then there was a red one that they built after that, which is sort of what this one is supposed to uh, remind us of. Um, uh, the signature was a completely different thing. It was a, a single coil. The neck sat very high on the body. So it was just awkward and it felt awkward. It felt stiff and I didn't like the neck and, you know, it had one of those weird kind of headstocks and, um, and I did the best I could with it, but I, I was so looking forward to getting out of that mode. <laughs> and then I went right, and then in the early nineties, I started using Paul Reed Smith a lot. I love those guitars. They're so well made. I, every piece, PRS that I got out of the case, perfectly tuned, felt amazing, really, really enjoyed them. The only thing that I missed was the the size of uh, a Gibson humbucker. So when I went back to using Les Pauls and mixed it up with the Les Paul and the 355, you know, I could hear the, the, the difference in the thickness and warmth of the Gibsons. So I, I sort of reintroduced them into my... Uh, repertoire of guitars you mentioned you were playing the the sportscaster for the solo for limelight do you remember what uh what amp you were playing through and what pedals you had on it yeah so i actually i i I talked to terry the other day i was trying i was asking him if he remembered anything from the session because i mean that was uh that was a long time ago it was 43 years ago and I, i can't remember things from 40 minutes ago so he was in this sort of the same boat. I thought we put the amps outside. I would have, at that time, I would have been using in the studio for that. I probably used um, Marshall head with maybe uh, my Marshall cabinets. And I probably had one of the Marshall uh, Countrymen. Um, it's a twin 12 uh, amp or Clubman, a country Clubman, a country club, something like that. I can't even remember. Um, they were great. I saw Alan Holsworth was using those amps and he had such a great tone. That's why I ended up getting them. And it was around that time, I think. 
And for pedals and, and effects, I think I was using a loft for that soft phasing. And uh, we would have set up probably a tape loop for the delay. Oh, okay. And, so what, it wasn't like an echo flex yeah. or something. It was. No, I don't. Um, was I still using my Echoplex then? I, I don't think I was. I think we we set up a proper de- delay with a uh, with a uh, two track tape, which was was common. But we, that's what we did a lot back in those days when we wanted to get longer delays, because uh, the really the digital delays were just coming online, and they were all pretty short. I don't think you could get more than about two hundred and fifty milliseconds back then. But the Loft was a great unit. It was a, a company in New Hampshire, I think, that made them. Uh, and it was like a chorusy phase unit with a very short delay. But they had like a, it had a really beautiful chorusy effect. And you could create that soft, gentle phasing as well. Alex, are you ready to break this thing down nice and slow so we can follow along? Okay, I'll try. All right. So, it's not easy to play slow. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Um, yeah. But it gets easier every year. Uh, so let's just first do a little housekeeping. So the solo section of Limelight is in G-sharp minor. Um, let, can we talk about, before we even get into the, into the solo itself, can we just talk about the chords in the song? Because I feel like these, this is like a signature thing of yours. Um, some of these like uh, chords in strange shapes with drone notes ringing out. One of these in particular, I don't think I've ever seen anybody else do. Okay, so there's like these kind of things where you're doing like a bar chord, but you're letting the high E and the the B ring out. But it's that G sharp, like what are we even calling this? G sharp minor or thing that you've... Like, where does that stuff come from? How did you come up with that? Were there other players that you had listened to before that, that influenced that? Or were you just, did you come up with that on your own? I don't know. I, I, I'm always looking for something different. And uh, I would just try different chords, different positions, and, and see what came up. Um, and that was, that was one of those. I mean, that, that's, a, that's kind of an Andy Summers chord. <laughs> You know, it's, the thing that I love about those kind of chords is to like the casual, casual listener. It just sounds like a song. But when you dive into it and start to try to figure it out, you realize, wait, I'm not doing that right. And then you have to like look into the granular stuff and you realize, oh, wait, there's a lot more going on there than than you just pick up on initially. Yeah. Uh, is that sort of the goal when you're writing totally. stuff? To yeah. Get, uh, to make it sound simple, but it's it's actually more complicated. And when you sit down to try to learn it, you realize that, oh, it's not what I thought it was. And for me, having all those open strings in a lot of my chords uh, not only created more sound to fill in the gaps, because Getty and Neil were very active, fast players. Like, they, were, they were so active all the time. Somebody had to hold the fort. And it sort of came to me, and that was fine because I like to get into effects and and all of that. And playing those kind of chords where they're open goes a long way. Right. And then with chorus and all of that other stuff. Yeah, even even in some of that stuff, I think it's so great where you got like you're keeping the uh, you're keeping your finger on that on the high. Yeah. Key. That one, yeah, 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 so cool. It sounds great. Like that, that's a great sounding chord. That's just an A chord. Right. With that added second. Oh. 
Yes, which brings us perfectly to the beginning of the solo. <laughs> right? So when when this thing kicks in, um, so like we said, great scene change. Now it's just you're just playing against bass and drums and some keyboard pads. Um, is it, it when that first B of the solo comes in? Is that an open B string? Yes. So it's. So I just tap the the twelfth fret. Okay, I was wondering with that when when that when that harmonic comes in, if that was like a happy accident in the studio, um, or if that was like an intentional thing. You're not picking it; you're just tapping it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it bends, and that comes back up. And where is that? That's what on the fourth fret on the D. Yeah, string? that's the F sharp, fourth fret on the D string. So this goes down. So now those ones you're sliding into, is that right? So you're not you're, yeah. you're not doing like starting with the bar down. It's not that, it's Now that's a lift. Ah, and where's that? That's the uh, see. Now that's the, when it, when we get to that part of the solo. I think that's really interesting because that's the solo's in G sharp minor, but you're coming in on the flat seven and kind of hanging on it for a while, which is like a little you know, it's a little ear twister. Yeah. So you've got the F sharp. Going to the flat seven, minor third, flat seven octave. And then this one, when you get to that, is an inch, like, for, for if it was me, I would have probably gone, like, just a regular minor third to the four to the, to the tonic. But you go to the, to the A sharp. Which is like, that's like a, a, a somewhat unusual choice. Yeah. It has to be fragile and and borderline breaking down. That's how you feel. Fragile sometimes. and borderline breaking down. Yeah, that's Love the whole it. idea of being in the limelight, you know? And I wanted to echo that. Okay, okay, hold on, hold on. Now we I feel like we're rushing through we gotta yeah, slow right. this down for the for the people. <laughs> All right, right, right. Slow down, slow down. All right, let's break that down really slow. So we kind of covered that first bit. But with this next part, do that nice and slow for me. That that, that is tricky and it and it's and it's kind of flying by. Okay, interesting. So let's let's talk about that real quick. That pattern you're doing is that something you just came up with in the studio that day, or was that is that like one of yeah. your sort of grab bag like patterns? You know, we all have like you know those kind of like those kind of like patterns that we that we do in leads, but that one's a little tricky and hard to kind of do up up at tempo. Yeah, it was on the day, and it was supposed to, uh, again, just represent that feeling of not being in control and and very fragile, shaky. And then, and then the next part, the next part, you do that, uh, you you do a, a little dive on the tonic, but then um, you're going to the open G string, which open G in the in the context of this solo is a is a strange note. 
But yeah, is that just like just throwing caution to the wind, and you've got the you got the tremolo down? It's not really hitting. Yeah, the notes, it, so. exactly. It doesn't. It, yeah, because it's not really. You're not hearing that. You're not hearing that note really. It's just. I was playing that wrong. I was going. Yeah. Yeah. You don't actually go down with the trauma until you finish the phrase. Ah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to bring this thing on tour, man. I'm going to do that yeah. every night. <laughs> Now the big finale thing it's really like by this time it's like the the band's revving up and the solos revving up right along with it. With that first bend after that big dive it goes yeah. you're bending up to the to the minor third. Are you doing a half step bend or a whole step bend? Is it this? Or is it um let's see. Okay. So that second part after the bend, and then and then you're picking that. I thought that was a. Well, I I, I play it now, picked. Oh, okay, okay. All right, so let's let's look at that that last picking part because what is that pat like? How are you fingering that? I think I know the is the pattern. Which yes, yeah. those kind of licks are really difficult. I I feel like because you're you know you've got it's like three three notes that are a whole step apart. And then when you shift up to the next one, it's a whole step and a half step. Like anytime you go between those shapes, it always I always fumble it. So how how do you approach that? What is, how do you finger that? Moving between those two. Yeah, well, that's a common thing for me. A lot of my solos will have that uh, that sort of climb up high just to finish to, to resolve the solo, um, and that's how I use that particular phrasing just a feeling of desperation as you're you're climbing up and sort of grabbing that last note your last word kind of thing are your fing are you using the same fingers for those yeah. for that or is it or are you changing so you you do yeah, your I would first use three fingers Awesome. I love it. And then, and then I love the way that that note trails off and then those beautiful chords come back in. Yeah. So we, in the studio, what we did was Terry uh, created a loop again on the, on a Revox actually on a, on a smaller two track and created a loop. So that would carry on that high note would just keep singing so that I could start doing the chords under the the clean chords underneath. On top of that. Now I I love when those chords kick in. Am I hearing that right? That um like that you're once you get to the E, even though that's it's hanging on the E, are you moving to that F sharp a little ahead of it so that you get that like you know what I mean? So, Yeah. Okay. 
Okay, so one time, nice and slow for the listener at home to really focus on your fingers and really pick up the subtle nuances of what you're doing. Will you be so kind as to play the whole solo? Thank you, thank you, Alex. Life's a come on. <laughs> like what you just did, this is exactly why I started this show. This is perfect. Amazing. Hey, listen, do you have time to take a few fan questions? Because like I said, I posted sure, yeah, them, uh, I posted yesterday on my social media stuff and uh and that I was gonna interview you, and there was a lot of responses. So Carrie Raw asked, What's the worst gear failure mishap that you've ever had? I'm assuming that means live. Yeah. Uh, well, one that stands out, certainly. We were playing in, in England. We, play, we were playing a gig in Sheffield. It was our first tour in the UK. You know, and uh, when we booked that tour, nobody thought we could sell any tickets, and the promoter wasn't sure if he should bring us over. And he announced the dates. He didn't want to do too many dates because he was afraid of losing too much money. And the tour sold out in no time. It wasn't big. You know, those are small venues, 2,000 seed, it's give or take. Um, so we're playing Sheffield's the first night. We're all excited and jazzed up for a, a new crowd. And I had a pedal that was a uh, parametric. It was a maestro parametric pedal. So you could, it just added some EQ at the front end uh, before it went into And it was prone to cut out. And we were playing uh, Finding My Way. And, you know, Finding My Way is like... And there was nothing. <laughs> that thing cut out. <laughs> From Toronto, Canada. Rush! <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that where you get the, the evil eye from Getty? Oh, uh, yeah, no, they look away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't, they don't want any, but they're not helping. They don't want any part of it. You're sinking all on your own. I mean, just as an aside of that, like, how great is that feeling when you're first starting touring and you go somewhere so far away from home and a whole room full of people show up to see you? Oh, it was amazing. It's an amazing feeling that we'd, you know, we loved so many bands from the UK, respected so many yeah. bands. And to go back, to go there and into the cradle of where we learned to play was really, really super special, even though they were relatively small gigs. Uh, and, but they were incredibly in tune, you know? They, they really listened to what we were playing. It wasn't just getting messed up and, yeah, that's cool, man. These people were listening, and then after the at, at, at the end of a song, they'd go crazy, and it was just the perfect audience. And yeah. The European audience is very much like that, I think. Yeah, UK oh, in particular, that is a particularly yeah. rabid fan. Yeah, um, Christian Buckner wants to know uh, what is wants me to ask you about your relationship with the chorus effect and thoughts, which we covered, but um, and thoughts on it coming back in fashion now. The chorus is back, baby. I feel like it's been back for a while. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I don't know if it ever really went away, but um, I, I became really reliant on it because I just loved it. I, I loved how it sounded and, and what it did in terms of uh, a band. Um, I, I think I loved it so much that I, I overused it for a long time. <laughs> you know, in retrospect, this is what I think. Yeah, he had an intervention like as Alex. You know, get a, on a number of occasions, he said, why don't you just try playing without it? You know, just to hear, see what it's like. And I was like, are you crazy? That's impossible. Why would I do that? What are you talking about, man? All right. Rich Blummel 
This is a hard-hitting question, Alex. Are you ready for this? In the 1980s, Alex often had a button on his guitar strap that appeared to be a photograph of somebody. Who was on that button? That could have been my uh, I Love Getty Lee button. <laughs> somebody threw up <laughs> a button that had dead space, and it says, I Love Getty Lee. And I wore that <laughs> for a couple of years, I think. <laughs> and did he tell you to take that off when he told you to put down the chorus pedal? No, I think he kind of liked that part. <laughs> Maybe not the chorus pedal so much, but <laughs> he liked the button. Or it could have been Henry from uh, Eraserhead. Ah, yeah, that's a good, good 80s reference. Um, one last question. And there's actually a lot of people brought this up in the comments. Um, how, how do you feel now about your Rock and Roll Hall of Fame speech being regarded as like one of the greatest of all time? And I, and I, so I went back and I, and I, and I rewatched it um, and just chuckled. But you, did you rehearse that? Like, was that, I'm sure you've answered this question 8,000 times, but like that was real commitment to a gag. Well, if, if you've just watched it, I do pull out my actual speech at one point in that speech. Uh, you know, this is my speech that I wrote for this thing tonight. And I didn't commit to it until I was walking up on the stage. And, uh, you know, Neil had given a, an eloquent speech. Getty had given a great fan speech. And I thought, what what else can I say? My speech was sort of along the lines, the same thing. What, why, why do I repeat it? And also, the main impetus was sitting there in the audience listening to all the other speeches. And they just kind of droned and went on and on. And I was like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God. Blah, blah, blah. What a great idea. That's what I'm going to do. And I, I, uh, <laughs> I leaned over to, to Charlene and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to do my speech. I'm going to do, I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. Isn't that great? And she said, you're going to do blah, blah, blah. That's what you're going to do here. That's what you're going to do. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, maybe. You it, think it, so? it seemed but like it, the Monty Python influence was really coming out. Yeah. And the funny thing is, Ged and Neil had no idea what I was doing. I was animating the whole history of the band and how we got to that point. Uh, and I think in, in the audience, you could tell, certainly this is what I've heard from a lot of people. That you, yeah, we could see that this was the story of the band. And uh, taking the digs at, at Rolling Stone and all of that stuff. But they were behind me and they couldn't see all of this. So they wanted to kill me. Like they wanted to really kill me with a knife or maybe an axe or yeah. something like that. And it's funny because the, Neil was quite upset that night. Afterwards. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He, like he was like, how could, you, how could you do that? You know, we for all this crap that we went through to get here and they finally brought us here and you kind of did that. And it's a fucking rock band. Reverence is important. Right. You know, besides I was just telling the story, especially in a room and full they, of people that probably gave you guys bad reviews for a very long time. Sure. <laughs> you know? And the thing is the next day, Neil sent me an email and he said, I owe you an apology the size of Texas because all his friends and buddies we're writing to him saying, Alex's speech was amazing. That was just unbelievable. And uh, and then he got it. And I think once he saw it, he could see that how the story it, it came about. But uh, yeah, they were both uh, kind of upset. <laughs> upset. Oh, that's classic. Well, Alex, dude, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. This has been an amazing way to kick this thing off. So thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I really, really enjoyed it a lot. Anytime. I can't wait to see those new uh, those new guitars. Yeah, coming soon. Awesome. Thanks, pal. Oh, yeah. How great was Alex Lifeson on Shred with Shifty? I'm going to go woodshed on that tune for a little while till I get it right. Why don't you do the same at home? And when you have it, post a video of yourself playing it and hashtag Shred with Shifty, and we might just use it in a show down the road. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Keep shredding. We'll see you soon. One, two, three. All right, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with me and checking out today's episode. Shred with Shifty is created and hosted by me, Chris Shiflett, and produced in partnership with Double Elvis, Volume.com, and Premier Guitar. 
If you're digging the show, make sure you hit that follow or subscribe button so you get our new episodes when they come out every other week. Volume.com is a free platform with live stream performances, concert broadcasts, and a video archive that includes performances by Brothers Osborne, Stone Temple Pilots, Dirks Bentley, Weezer, and more. Shred with Shifty is produced by Jason Shadrick. Our executive producers are Brady Sadler and Jake Brennan for Double Elvis. Engineering support by Matt Tahaney and Matt Bowden. Our video editors are Dan DeStefano and Trevor Bowman. Special thanks to Chris Peterson, Greg Necron, and the entire Volume.com crew. Adios, amigos.